the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. We're going to talk with Jerry Boyer. He is a financial expert, public speaker, and the publisher of Affluent Investor Daily. And Jerry, always a privilege to have you join us on the program. Let's get your take on this. I mean, I know there's a bit of saber rattling going on between the two sides and a bit of scare tactics just to try and get one side to do what the other side wants. But from your perspective... Is there a possibility that they might not reach an agreement in the next 14 days? And if so, what would that look like for not just the economy of the average American, but quite frankly, what it would look like for the impact on America's standing economically globally? Well, yes, there is a possibility, but I wouldn't say there's a probability that they won't reach an agreement um, and probably not a plausibility because if um, if it really was likely that they would not reach an agreement, uh, which would mean that we'd have some kind of crisis, could be a default crisis um, or a shutdown, then gold would not be up, you know, uh, 0.04 percent today. It would be up 40 percent. Uh, you know, it wouldn't be hovering just under 2,000. It would be hovering just under 4,000 uh, because that would be a, um, a sign of a serious crisis coming uh, and the possibility of um, a debt crisis. If we default, that's bad. Um, and I, I, look, I understand that the long-term problem is spending, um, but we're not going to solve that long-term problem if we basically say, okay, we're going to drive such a hard bargain. And by we, I'm talking about conservatives, so I'm on a side. I just have to be straight about that. If we conservatives... Um, use the debt ceiling in order to get some reasonable concessions, I come out of that saying that's great, you know, like spending caps or something like that. But with these um, debt cap battles, there's always the possibility that we play chicken for just a little too long and then there's a crash. Um, and if we get to the point where we've played chicken too much um, and the United States misses a bond payment, then that is a thing that is pretty cataclysmically bad. It's almost like a third world kind of thing. Um, and what would that mean? That would mean that there would be a run on treasuries around the world and there'd be a run on dollars. Uh, the world would say, oh, the United States is no longer, um, you know, full, the full faith and credit is not something that we can give full faith to anymore and, um, and give credit to. Um, and they wouldn't want treasury bonds and they wouldn't want the dollar. Uh, and if they don't want treasury bonds, that means interest rates would rise, which is the recessionary. And if they don't want the dollar, that means the dollars come back and circulate domestic. They're not held overseas, uh, which is inflationary. And we would long for the days of 10% inflation like we had a year ago because we'd be looking at more. Now, I'm not saying that's what's going to happen. I don't think that is going to be what's going to happen. I think what we're going to do is do what we've 
always done, which is kick the can down the road and do more spending. Uh, so the market, the stock markets are down today, uh, and the dollar's weaker, and gold is up, and Bitcoin is up. So all of that is saying we're probably going to end up just doing what we've always done, which is continuing to spend, continuing to borrow, and continuing to print money in order to do that. So we're choosing the slow, the, the slow motion default which is monetization of debt and inflation, rather than the fast version of default, which is to actually miss a bond payment. And to be clear about this, this is not raising the debt ceiling limits so we can go out and buy more stuff. This is raising the debt ceiling limits so that we can essentially pay our bills, make our obligations. Yes, and um, and actually, you know, if we're borrowing money to pay the interest on the money that we've borrowed, so this is a situation where we're kind of borrowing on a credit card to make our credit card payments. Uh, so you borrow on one credit card to pay the bills, so that you don't default on the other credit card. Uh, so I mean, the situation is that we borrow, we use bonds to do that, um, but those bonds, you know, they have a duration. Some of them are thirty-year bonds, and some of them are ten-year bonds, and some of them are five and three, and there's one year bonds even uh, and there are three three month bonds etc so what happens is when they mature then the government has to pay back the money so what we do is we we don't pay back the money we roll over the bonds we issue new bonds uh, so we keep rolling that credit over again and again and again so the debt ceiling would be used to roll over the credit now if somebody you know I'm, I'm a financial person I'm not a financial advisor a financial planner but my clients are financial advisors and financial planners so I advise advisors when when clients are doing that that is a bad sign for their long-term outlook well, that's a bad sign for the long-term outlook of the United States. Um, I just don't know a way in which we can stop it, and that's the thing that scares me. Republicans don't have the we don't you know we don't have the presidency, um, and we don't have the ability to control spending. And by the way, when we do have it, and all of a sudden we get less interested in controlling spending. Uh, basically, the consensus in Washington is spending is too high when my party isn't in power, whichever one it is. But when we're in charge then spending is not high enough. Yeah. So we have a bipartisan, pro-spending, pro-borrowing consensus, and the inevitable result, there's no way to have the borrowing without the money creation, because we're not savers as, as Americans. So if we don't save money to lend money to the government, then what does that mean? It means that the Federal Reserve has to create new money, and then it lends that newly created money to the federal government, and that's inflationary. It's basically an economic shell game, and uh, it just depends on who is holding the shells at the moment as to what direction uh, things end up spinning. And you're right. Isn't it ironic that when the Democrats are in control, they have no problem with spending, but when the shoe is on the other foot, they're all against it and vice versa. You indicate, Jerry, that the notion of defaulting is possible. Anything is possible, but not probable. That said, I'm curious. One of the comments that... Fed Chair Yellen has made, um, uh, not Fed Chair, but but Janet Yellen has made uh, repeatedly Treasury, Treasury Secretary. Yeah, uh, yeah that right. flashback out of there. <laughs> um, right. that she, she, she's made repeatedly is the notion that, well, if we allow the default to take place, that will unseat the dollar and would likely open the doorway for the Chinese renminbi to take over as a dominant world currency. I, I, again, not outside of the notion of possible versus probable, um, 
um, just if you if you look at it from a financial standpoint, is the world really clamoring to get Chinese money as the new standard, or are there pitfalls with that as well? Oh, there are. I, I don't think the world trusts the Chinese. Uh, you know, I mean, I don't think we trusted them before the Wuhan virus. And I'm quite sure we don't trust them now. I mean, I, I think a lot of the world understands that uh, that the CCP is an extremely corrupt institution and that they can't be trusted. Um, I mean, after all, if if the Chinese could be trusted, the dollar would have lost reserve currency status a long time ago because we've been doing a lot of stupid things. So as stupid as we've been, um, the, Chi- the Chinese system is much worse, much worse rule of law, much less stability. And by the way, they don't have a democratically elected form of government. They're still a dictatorship. They have a revolution in their future. They're not going to be a dictatorship forever. Uh, so at some point, you know, there's, they're actually going to become a democratic, in my opinion, they're going to become a democratic republic. Dictatorships fall. So who wants to be holding the bag on the renminbi uh, or, or, or the bonds, uh, you want, or however you want to put it, uh, or the bonds when that happens? So yeah, they're, they're pretty weak. Plus, there's something else. You can only become the reserve currency of the world if you're willing to let the world trade in your currency which means you have to give up control. But they have capital controls. So they're not willing to have a free market in the yuan, enough of a free market where it even could be freely traded so that it could be the reserve currency. So I don't think the world would turn to the yuan. I think if we lost our reserve currency status, it would be the world would turn to all of the above. In other words, they'd say, okay, we're using maybe the dollars being used maybe on 50% of transactions or 40% depending international transactions, depend on how you count it. And, um, you know, we're the we're we're about a little more than half of the reserve currencies. So let's say they let's say the world stopped trusting us. They wouldn't say, well, we're going to sell that 60 percent of dollars and buy 60 percent yuan. What they'll do is they'll sell a few trillion, maybe a trillion or two of dollars and they'll buy some gold and they'll buy some euros and they'll buy some yen and they'll buy some yuan. I mean, they'll, they'll diversify um, away from the dollar. So it wouldn't be like a sudden it wouldn't be like happened after world war ii which was you know the the kind of the reserve currency system kind of shifted from being great britain pound centered um really after world war one and then to world war ii there was a situation where the pound was the reserve currency of the world and then the dollar became the reserve currency of the world i don't think that's that's a situation because the dollar was ready to replace the pound under the socialist government of clement attlee um when people rejected the british pound they had someplace else to go but they don't have one other someplace else to go now so what they would essentially do is you'd have you wouldn't have any reserve currency at all you'd have a mixture so the yuan the chinese currency would be like a regional reserve currency the trading partners in asia there'd be you know a lot of them would hold yuan but you probably wouldn't have a lot of yuan held by canada or the european countries and the yen would still be a powerful currency so i I think and even you know the british pound to some degree so I think that Yellen is fear-mongering there a little bit. Um, first of all, nobody's talking about default. Second of all, I don't understand why the Biden White House keeps acting as though the Republicans' unwillingness to raise the debt ceiling would be the thing that would trigger the default, as opposed to the Democrats' unwillingness to come to a reasonable agreement about the spending cap. Exactly. Who's more? Who's more responsible? Who, who's the, um, got the greater the one risk? Who wants to keep spending is more responsible. Yeah, undoubtedly so. And the other notion I think here is the idea that um, no party wants it on their head as being responsible for triggering a massive economic sinking 
uh, recession in America. That's just not a good look particularly when you're 18 months out from an election. Gary Boyer with us today. He is an economist and publisher of the Affluent Investor Daily. We're talking about the world of money. When we come back, if you had money in First Republic Bank or Silicon Valley Bank, you you probably have a growing distrust for banks. Certainly there are a number of Americans that feel that way. How about... How about an example of a bank when we come back that's being distrusted by growing numbers of Americans for an entirely different set of reasons that has nothing to do with their financial management, but rather just who you are as a depositor? you talking about, Craig? What you're going to find out next is our conversation with Jerry Boyer. Information on the web, affluentinvestor.com. That's affluentinvestor.com. Back with more after this. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. So imagine going to your bank one day and saying, hi, I'm here to make a deposit. And you give your deposit slip and the amount of money that you're going to place into your account across the counter there to the teller. And the teller quickly types on the keyboard, right? Comes back and says, I'm sorry, sir, your account's been closed. What? Excuse me? Why is my... I, I didn't close the account. How could that... Wait a minute here. My account's been closed. Bring the branch manager over. The branch manager tells you, yeah, your account's been closed, but I can't tell you why. What? Now, I suppose if a bank found out that you have been involved in some nefarious activities like counterfeiting and things of that sort, and they think that you might be a big risk because maybe the money you're depositing is phony money, maybe maybe they've got a reason there. But what we're learning is one bank in particular, and it may not be limited to Chase, but certainly Chase is the one that's being accused in this story, um, has apparently been following a kind of quiet, below-the-radar screen policy of basically shutting down their business, closing relationships, as they call it, not because of nefarious activities related to an account, but because, because gentle listener, they just don't like you. <laughs> Jerry Boyer continues our discussion today, publisher of Affluent Investor Daily and an economist. And uh, Jerry, you know, you read a story like this and you think, this has got to be something out of the onion. What bank would do this? And apparently, at least at this point, first glance, it seems to be, well, the answer is Chase Bank. Tell us what's going on. Yeah, it is a little bit onion-like in that it makes me want to cry. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, and it kind of stinks a little. Uh, yeah, the the person you're talking about is a former ambassador at large for religious liberty, Sam Brownback, who was also before that this, a senator from Kansas and the governor of Kansas. Great guy. Very been well a guest on this show many times down through the years. I would expect that, right? Um, that's the kind of quality person you have on. And a very reasonable man, very well-respected. You know, he worked with Chuck Schumer on the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, so bipartisan uh, credentials. You know, by the way, Bill Clinton signed the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. This is not exactly some crazy radical, uh, and he started a religious freedom organization that advocated religious freedom, uh, and and had that account at uh, his Chase Bank, and they told him they they shut it down, and they wouldn't tell him why. Um, and then they later on they gave explanations, but they kept giving different explanations, and they asked him, "Well, who are your major donors, and what candidates are you supporting?" Um, and and if you tell us that, maybe we can reinstate your bank. And he said, I'm not going to tell you who my donors are. Um, you know, that's private information. You don't need to know that. 
Um, and so they did not reinstate it. Uh, they've told a lot of stories. By the way, I've talked with Chase extensively about this. Um, you know, uh, so they've had different versions of the story. Uh, they said that he didn't fill out the paperwork in a timely manner. But the paperwork they're referring to, there's a 60-day deadline, and they they canceled his account after 24 days. So he didn't miss a deadline because they canceled before the deadline. And then they said something about some, you know, under the law, uh, you know, we have to be careful about terrorism, international terrorism. And he's, well, no, I'm not terrorist. Um, and um, you know, they, they they keep changing up what the you know what the story is, um, and they never really have given a satisfactory explanation uh, for you know, why they canceled his account. But they have canceled other accounts from conservatives. They have a history of that. Uh, and by the way, I've talked to the Investment Relations Department, and they could not give me any examples of any liberal groups um, who had had their uh, you know accounts canceled. So there seems to be a pattern to this. Uh, so a financial advisor uh, from Southern California, um, David Bonson, put a proposal on the ballot, and all he said is, we want you to do a report that is transparent about how these things happen. How do you make these decisions? Uh, and do you count the cost of backlash for debanking someone? Are you violating people's civil liberties? And what they they didn't want to do the report. In fact, they didn't even want to let the, the this question go on the ballot before shareholders. They didn't even want shareholders to be able to vote on the question of whether the company should report this information to shareholders. So they tried to block it with the Securities and Exchange Commission, and the Securities and Exchange Commission said, no, we don't agree with you, J.P. Morgan Chase. Um, we think that this is a matter that properly is before the shareholders. I mean, I'm I'm paraphrasing their view, but they didn't support the request uh, from J.P. Morgan Chase to leave it off the ballot. Uh, and, um, you know, I mean, what they're saying is we don't have a policy of debanking people based on their religious or political views. Well, of course they don't have a policy of that. No company in the world would have a policy of debanking someone based on their political or religious views. That would be completely indefensible. Instead, here's the way it works. The way it works is they have vague policies. Like, we don't want to do business with anybody who's hateful or harmful or involved in hateful expressions or has hateful views. So they put out vague standards. And then somebody in the bureaucracy can say, well, you know, this religious liberty stuff has been used to uh, block, you know, trans legislation uh, or for people who don't want to support um, abortion or don't want to do gay marriages or et cetera. So maybe this is hateful. You know, that that's that's how it usually works. Is that how it worked to Chase? We don't know because they don't want to say how it works. All The only thing they're willing to say is that they don't have an explicit policy of discriminating based on religion. Oh, well, great. Congratulations. Nobody has an explicit policy like that. You know what's ironic about this is I I could understand, again, as I suggested in my opening remarks, from a risk management standpoint, that they might be concerned about, well, there are allegations and some evidence that you may be using this account for money laundering. Okay, nefarious activities, you know, maybe you've got a point. But can you imagine any any publicly traded company saying, yes, when you come through the doors of Sam's Club, Walmart, Costco, Safeway, Lucky's, insert name here, 
CBS. We want to check with you and make sure that you don't have views or opinions that we don't find to be pleasant. And before we'll sell you our products, we're going to we're going to put you through our litmus test. I mean, you know, it would be the end yeah. of capitalism if you did that. I just find it abhorrent that a bank would even suggest that they would do something like this, whether it's an official publicly stated on books policy or one of these sort of quiet behind the scenes. We don't publicize it. We don't talk about it, but we do it anyway. Sort of policy. It's just ridiculous. Yeah, we don't serve your kind here, but we're not going to exactly say what your kind is. Yeah, exactly. Explain why. Uh, there's a former Chase executive who says they have a um, policy called red dotting, where you put a red dot on a customer that you think is a reputational risk to the bank. So I think the situation is likely. I mean, who knows? Because if they don't disclose, you just have to look at the pattern and then speculate as to you know why they're doing what they're doing. I think that it's pretty clear that with a lot of the, the large corporations and especially the large banks, which are probably more ideologically captured because they're more dependent on government. They're highly regulated by government and they're also bailed out by government. Uh, so they're kind of, I mean, we're like free insurance to them because they're mm-hmm. too big to fail. Um, and today at a press conference, uh, Scott Shepard from the National Center said, if you're too big to fail, then you're too big to discriminate. If you're dependent on the taxpayer, then you shouldn't be able to discriminate. Uh, but of course, I think we all believe that banks should be able to discriminate based on reasonable standards. Um, banks should be able to turn down a mafioso or a drug dealer. Um, I mean, I get that. But that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about an extremely middle America, mainstream, um, moderate Republican, pro-religious liberty organization. I mean, this isn't even a religious... Um, look, if this was an organization that was out there saying we're opposed to gay marriage, they shouldn't be debanked, okay? But they weren't even saying that. They they were just doing nothing but affirming religious liberty. Um, but I think that there's a sense in which religious liberty is now seen by many people as essentially a defense of hate. And if that's the case, then what we're going to find is more and more discrimination against Christians. Now, Chase says, well, listen, we've got 50,000 religious customers, you know, banks or churches, synagogues, whatever. I get that. But your local Baptist or your local Catholic church is different than an organization that's out there taking public stances on issues. That is a, that's more likely to trigger a response from the hard left, a group that's out there saying, we are going to support in the public square the idea of religious liberty, because that actually is involved in a conflict, because religious liberty is, in fact, a defense against the authoritarianism, to some degree, of the LGBTQ movement, which is basically saying, you know, bake the cake or else take the pictures or else. And people are saying, wait a minute, I've got religious liberty. So there is a conflict between advocates of religious liberty and advocates of forced conformity on sexual identity issues. So that's why J.P. Morgan Chase can say, we've got 50,000 you know, churches that we have accounts for and we haven't canceled them. Yeah, they're harmless from your point yeah, of view. Yeah, but to tell you, Jerry, this is kind of the equivalent of um, what comes to mind. The guy who's just been a arrested for murder saying, but yeah, the first 10 people that walked by, I didn't shoot any of them. (laughs) Wait a minute. Not a really solid defense. Moreover, you know, again, reputational management, but it's not like it's a a major known organization. And moreover, if it were not for this conversation, how would anybody even know that Sam Brownback's organization used to bank with Chase? Nobody but Sam Brownback knows that. It's just, you know, it's 
Well, you know, it's modern-day woke business. Doesn't happen everywhere. Not everybody that gets accused of being woke is, but boy, it sure seems like it in this case. More on the story, no doubt, as this continues to develop. Jerry Boyer, we appreciate the time. Information about Jerry's work on the web at affluentinvestor.com. That's affluentinvestor.com. Looking for the story behind the story when it comes to money. It's a great newsletter to subscribe to, affluentinvestor.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Well, as by now, you're no doubt well aware, U.S. stocks closed out 2022 much lower, capping a year of sharp losses driven by aggressive interest rate hikes to curb inflation, recessionary fears, and of course, the ongoing Russia-Ukraine war, along with rising concerns over the impact of COVID, particularly in cases like China. Wall Street's three men indices booked their first yearly drop since 2018 as an era of loose monetary policy came to a screeching halt. The Fed's fastest pace of rate hike seen since the 1980s. The benchmark S&P 500 shedding almost 19%, marking roughly an $8 trillion decline in market cap. Meanwhile, the tech-heavy Nasdaq down 33%, while the Dow Jones Industrial Average had fallen almost 9%. The annual percentage declines for all three indices were the biggest we've seen since the 2008 financial crisis, largely driven by a rout in growth shares as concerns over the Fed's rapid rate increases boost U.S. Treasury yields. Additionally, many of the economic indicators pointing to recession, political tensions, along with the Ukraine war, also added to a sense of uncertainty. With a look not only at the year that was, but most importantly, the year ahead, we're joined by the principal of Compact Asset Management, the host of Market Wrap, heard each Monday through Friday at 5 p.m. on KDOW. Always a delight and an education to have join us, Mo Ansari. Mo, welcome and a slightly belated Happy New Year to you. Well, thank you so much for inviting me to the broadcast today. It's always a pleasure. It's, uh, as I indicated, been a, been a kind of a rough year for shareholders, and I guess particularly for those that either weren't paying any attention, didn't have a strategy in place, or were perilously close to or already in retirement. Um, 2022 is not going to be a year very fondly remembered. That is correct, Greg. It was one of those tough years that uh, the markets we occasionally go through. And that's, as I always say, nothing goes up in a straight line. We've had a number of wonderful years in the market. 2021 was a banner year. 2020 was rocky, but still came up positive. So, you know, over the years, in the last seven, eight years, we've accumulated a lot of wealth in these in our stock accounts then there are years like last year where you have to be cautious you have to have the right allocations so that's i call what i call those as shock absorbers that you have built into your portfolio so the market was down 19 you go gave up 10 or 12 probably by this time of the year you're back most of the game what you gave up last year you've gained it back if you had the right allocation if you had bitcoin and the cryptos <laughs> then you had a problem that's uh, that's unfortunately what happens at market tops, people get overly aggressive. And, of course, I guess a lot of it really sort of turns and centers on what you've sort of alluded to, and that is the notion of your appetite for risk. And, obviously, those particular financial vehicles that may promise the greatest reward also are almost exclusively attended to by the greatest degree of risk. Overall, I wonder, though, as you kind of analyze what we have been through, not only nationally but globally, um, since sort of the impact of COVID in 2020, 
uh, is it fair to say, in your opinion, Mo, that in spite of all of this and all of the the economic challenges, the health challenges, the the geopolitical related challenges as well, that the markets have proven themselves to be remarkably resilient in spite of all of these events? I would definitely agree with you on that particular topic. I'm always a glass half full sort of guy. That's what I've always looked at. And then there are the panicnistas out there, as I call them, which are always saying, look, the world is ending. It's going to end at midnight, but make sure you tune in tomorrow so we'll tell you what happened. But uh, I, you know, I'm always looking at the markets and we go through, there's no straight line. There, there will be ups and downs. It's just like life. It's it's not a straight line. There are ups and downs in life, and uh, that's what the market is all about. But you have to believe in American capitalism. You have to believe in American companies. And anybody who's shorted or gone short America or gone short American capitalism has ended on the short end of the stick. And people call me and say, oh, the dollar is crashing. I said, well, what would you like, some Bitcoin instead? Or what would you like to have? They go, oh, no, I think I'll keep my dollar. So, uh, yeah, we do go through these ups and downs. But overall, the markets have held up very, very well. And we have a new paradigm. We have a new paradigm shift with the liquidity coming out of the system instead of coming in the system. You've been doing this for many, many years, and you've sat undoubtedly with thousands of clients down through the years who have walked into your office or called you uh, hands-wringing, concerned about what happened on Wall Street yesterday, last week, um, worried about the, the future of their uh, their financial plans. And I have to wonder, as, as you sort of look at the big scheme of thing of all of the years that you have been involved in market uh, money management, rather, and market analysis, What's the, the, the bigger enemy here? The historic performance of the Dow or the NASDAQ or the inappropriate emotional response to same? There's only two things that I try to tell people that will hurt them in these markets. One is fear and one is greed. Mm. If you have either one of those emotions, when they take over, watch out. That will be a disaster for your financial future. Uh, again, when markets are going down, people get fearful. When the markets go up, they get euphoric. What I try to tell them is make sure you keep your balance. And it is not easy to do, as you know, because when it comes to money, it is a very, very emotional subject. What I try to tell people is, first of all, let's find the correct emotional balance in your portfolio. Forget about the financial risk that you can take. How much emotional risk can you handle? And we call that uh, your risk number. It's like a speed limit. It's going on the freeway, and if you think you're going 30, but you're going 90, on the first curve that comes, you go off the cliff. So you have to know what speed your portfolio is going at and make sure that speed matches your emotional risk. And that's the first thing that we do. Then we have you know a team that has 100 years of experience in the markets that works with our clients. Uh, we have a professor of finance that teaches at the University of California, the MBA class for wealth management. He's my brother, but he, he does that for fun, and he's worked with me for 20 years. Those uh, That's the kind of the team that we bring, expertise we bring to the clients, and then develop a roadmap to get them not where they are today and not worry about tomorrow, but where they will be when they retire and to maintain their lifestyle and to get them to their financial destination. Does that suggest that there needs to be, uh, what should we call it, a, a strategy in place? And I ask that question because, you know, I, th- I think the average Joe on the street where we had open the phone lines in this conversation right now and just take a, a, a general anonymous survey, most people, I think, would simplistically say, look, I've got X number of dollars in my nest egg today, and when I retire in 10, 20, 30 years, I'd like to have X number of dollars. It's a very simplistic approach. 
approach. They know that in the end, they want more. <laughs> But well, everybody the, wants to be Elon Musk, but they can't be Elon Musk. Exactly. Okay. So we have to settle for something <laughs> in between. But but getting to that in between is not something that can be um, casually approached, can it? In other words, we've all seen times on Wall Street when, my goodness, it just seemed like month after month after month, like, like real estate in Los Angeles or the San Francisco Bay Area, you couldn't buy a house that was a loser. They constantly went up. It was almost throw a dart at a name on the wall and uh, invest a few bucks and you made money. Uh, that that seems to be though a very simplistic approach. So I'm wondering, from from an overall strategic approach, what do people really need to keep in mind when it comes to taking that nest egg and investing it in such a way that it will get them to and through retirement? That's what I call gold-based investing. What are you trying to accomplish? That's the first thing we ask people. Besides, everybody wants to get rich. That's great. But what is your end goal? What do you want to really have? Do you want to maintain your lifestyle that you have? Do you want to transfer a lot of money to your kids? Do you want to sell your business, transfer your business, etc.? So then we develop a plan, and that is where we bring in somebody who's got 10, 15, 20 years of experience from our financial planning division, where a financial planner sits down develops that roadmap for you. First, the investment team figures out how much risk and all of that. Then we want to have a roadmap to get you from where you are now to where you want to be financially. And then we check that and make sure we're on the right trajectory every single year that you are going in the right direction. And that's the most important part. People get so distracted by this or that, and they get pulled in by, oh my God, but go ahead and buy this because we are going to save you or buy gold or whatever it may be. Unfortunately, having the right plan and being able to stick and, and de- uh, deliver on it is it's easier said than done. But that's what you have to do. And that's why we have for the financial planners that work with every single client, somebody who's got 10, 15, 20 years of experience. We've got the asset management team that combine is nearly 100 years of experience in the markets. And then we have a relationship manager that, again, has 10, 15, 20 years of experience. And then we tell the people, look, if you become a client of Compaq, we'll give you a free trial for a year. If you're not happy for any reason for what we have done over the year, just call us and we will give back all the fees that we've charged you no questions asked that's how simply we try to tell people there's very few people in our business who ever put their money where their mouth is they'll tell you all the great things but if you ask them to risk some of their own commissions or fees they'll never do that we say look try us out see what we do for a year and let us develop your financial plan let us do the asset allocation and you're not happy you don't even have to give us a reason we'll refund all the fees as you are perhaps uh, pondering your own financial future, reviewing where things are, and, and most importantly, perhaps trying to get a better handle on where you need to be to enjoy a comfortable retirement for yourself, maybe it's time for you to take advantage of a very special seminar coming to the San Francisco Bay Area. Mo is going to be hosting it. It's the 2023 Market Outlook Seminar with Mo Ansari. That'll be Wednesday, February the 22nd, starting at 1130 a.m. in San Jose. It'll be a front early afternoon of food and finance and um, there's never of course any cost or obligation but because seating is limited you do need to register now during the seminar mo will provide detailed analysis and some insights regarding everything from the current state of inflation to interest rates market volatility stock market evaluation and the outlook for the balance of 2023 he'll also talk about recession possibilities and an overall glimpse at global economic conditions and ultimately what compact asset management can do 
for you. Again, the date will be Wednesday, February the 22nd at 11.30 a.m. And to get details and register online, simply go to Compact. Dot com. That's C-O-M-P-A-Q dot com. Click on the seminar tab and you can register easily online. Again, no cost or obligation, but because seating is limited, do register today. Go to C-O-M-P-A-K. That's compact dot com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. We're speaking today with Mo Wansari. Mo, of course, is the principal of Compact Asset Management and the host of Market Wrap, heard each Monday through Friday at 5 p.m. on KDOW. Mo, in the previous segment, you you made a bit of a reference to uh, cryptocurrency. And, of course, we know that uh, such matters have been very heavily in the news any surprise when you look at all of these events? And we know that, of course, there's lawsuits taking place. Security Exchange Commission is involved. Congress is investigating. I long from the very beginning wondered uh, at what point would governments, be it our own or others, begin to seriously step in and say, you know, th- this is a kind of a quagmire, obscure arena of finance that is totally unregulated, and I'm sure to the frustration of organizations like the IRS, further out of their control than they would like. Is there ever a time when a serious investor with an eye on retirement should be considering putting their toe into so-called cryptocurrency, or it just does it remain just too, 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 too murky and too um, potentially risky? I think it's, it's what I call people call me up and say, Mo, my friend bought crypto and they're doing so well and so on. I only buy companies that are good cash flows, that are solid companies that are going to be. But on the other hand, I say, look, if you want to take some money, which I call your Vegas money, and you want to put it into something like crypto or whatever, take a small, tiny portion and you can do it just, just for fun. Because it's not an investment. It's gambling. That's what you're doing. And if you want to do, take a little gamble with a half a percent or a quarter percent or something like that, it's fine. It's entertainment money rather than investing. That's the way I look at it. Same thing I told people 20 years ago when they were buying their dot-coms. And I said, look, there will be companies that are going to change the world, like the Googles and the Microsofts and the Amazons. But you did not know 30 years ago which ones they were going to be. And there were thousands of other ones that everybody was buying. There will be companies that will come out of crypto that might make sense in the future, especially blockchain companies or the technology behind Bitcoin and all of these. So, But we will wait until we see companies that are out there that are making a profit, turning cash flow, that we can see that we've got audited returns, that we can see the results, and then you can buy them at that point as an investment. But right now, it's a gamble. Yeah, and I like the way you put it. If you if you approach it with the same idea as you would taking some cash out of the bank to head to Reno or Las Vegas, uh, <laughs> understanding that you might come home having hit the jackpot or you might come home with empty pockets and that's a level of money that you're okay doing that with, then knock yourself out. But to pick up the phone and call uh, your, uh, your manager of your 401k and say, cash me out, I've just got this great deal on the latest Dogecoin, probably <laughs> not a good idea. 
Exactly. Let's talk about another arena of the market that I, I certainly is of particular interest to folks here in Northern California. And I know you're going to be touching on some of this during your Market Outlook seminar for 2023. Again, that's coming up on Wednesday, February the 22nd at 1130 a.m. in San Jose. No cost or obligation, by the way. And to participate, you just simply need to register online because seating is limited. Go to compact.com. That's C-O-M-P-A-K.com. And click on the seminar tab. Again, Mo, here with us Wednesday, February the 22nd, 1130 a.m. in San Jose. Details and reservations. No obligation. Online at compact.com. Look for the seminars tab. But I'm curious, one arena, certainly post.com boom, has been high techs. You look at what happened with the routing at the end of 2022. My goodness, the the tech-heavy NASDAQ down 33%. Much of that represented by the pain being experienced by many of the FANG stocks, the Facebooks, the, the Googles, the Apples, et cetera, et cetera. It, it has been such a key component for many investors to rely so heavily upon tech stocks to give the greatest degree of buoyancy to their investments over the last uh, nine, eight, ten years. Uh, going forward, do you get a sense that there will be some recuperation? Is this a necessary correction we're seeing right now? Does it does it suggest something more ominous? What are your thoughts? I think as far as technology is concerned, a lot of these companies grew astronomically during COVID. They just hired a lot more people. Demand was tremendous. And we saw that spike in their valuations and in what they were doing and demand for their products. But now as we normalize the world, we come out of COVID, I think their demand for some of their products is going down and it'll take a while to normalize and that's what we're going through. I still think we'll need uh, Google. We'll use Google. I think we still use Amazon on a daily basis. We use Microsoft. And so those companies and Apple phones, if we lose our phone for two minutes, uh, we have to run down or if we break it, we have to come run down and get a new one instantly because we can't live without them. It's become a utility, a necessity rather than a luxury. So I think these companies are going to do well, but interest rates, which had been very, very low, and they were being priced for growth. Now with the interest rates going up, and I believe they're going to stay up for a period of time, they're not going to come down as quickly as everybody thinks. We have to revalue their growth, their their growth, and how much return we can, what we are paying for their growth. So I think they are going to not be the the companies. They will still do well, but not as well as they've done over the last ten years, because the money liquidity uh, is not going to come from the Fed, and that is going to hurt. Uh, or discount their growth more than what we otherwise would. Some have said that the feds have tightened the screws way too much. Others have suggested that they've done it way too late. What, what, what is your thought? Are, are we more back to a sense of normalcy when we look at these current interest rates? I think we are normalizing them again. And, you know, 0% interest rates were not reality. I think we, we went overboard. They were late. In starting to raise rates in 21, they did not do that. They kept on calling inflation transitory while we had put in five, six trillion dollars into, into the economy. That was a tremendous amount of money. It did cause inflation. And now they're trying to reverse that and raise interest rates, which they did at the fastest rate since 1980. So now I think we'll see a normal rate, uh, somewhere around four or five percent. They've said the target is five for the Fed fund rate which I think they are going to get to with another interest rate increase in March. But what happens after that is what the market is trying to figure out. And I think the Fed itself does not know. It will depend on the growth, 
how much the economy slows, if it slows or not. Everybody has been looking for a recession. And then we got the unemployment numbers last Friday with 517,000 jobs created. So the economy is not going into recession. It's booming. So people are trying to figure that out. And I think it'll take some time before we see the impact of the interest rate increases that the Fed did last year and how much the economy slows, how much does unemployment go up, and then the Fed will gauge if they need to raise rates more or not. So not only are the money experts trying to kind of figure out where all of this is headed, the Fed as well, and perhaps you individually, as you look at your day-to-day income, your expenditures, the work that you're doing and setting up money heading toward retirement, are you on track? And, and how do you learn to sort of navigate through these new at times, uncertain waters. Well, much of that's going to be the focus of the special seminar we mentioned coming up on Wednesday, February the 22nd. It'll be at 11 a.m. in San Jose. No cost or obligation, but because seating is limited, you do need to register in advance. Go to compact.com. Look for the seminar tab. That's C-O-M-P-A-K.com. Look for the seminar tab to register easily online. Spend a quick moment, if you would, Mo, and kind of walk us through the highlights of what folks can expect to experience during the special seminar on Wednesday, February the 22nd? Well, first of all, I want to really tell them how to find the right risk number for their portfolio. What is the right amount of degree of risk for them? How to find it? And each one of us are different. We have a different emotional makeup, different financial makeup, different uh, different part of life that we're in. And we're different, you know, we might be older, younger, and so on. So that's the first thing that I'm going to show them. Then I'm going to talk about my experience, what I've seen has worked over the years, what I've seen that has really created wealth. How do you create wealth for yourself? Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.